Why is it that every single person in this room, everyone watching online, has this incredible capacity to engage in self-deception? That we lie to ourselves constantly with respect to our sin and the very motives that we carry for why we do anything good at all. That in many ways, we deceive ourselves and we're motivated to serve ourselves. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Bernice Bowman. My husband Darren and I have attended Gateway most of our lives, and I currently serve as a deacon. Our text today is 1 Samuel 13, verses 5 through 14. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that the situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were caking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to grab your Bibles, please, and to find 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to be marching through chapters 13, 14, and 15 this morning. In preparation for the season of Advent, we have been taking the last two weeks, both last week and this week, to engage this one question, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the collective human race? Why do we have the capacity to do to each other the things that we do? And we learned last week that according to Scripture, the problem is this. The real problem of the world is human sin. The real problem of the world is not something out there. It's not external circumstances. It's not just your neighbor. It's the sin that rages in your heart, the sin that rages in my heart. And because that is the case, we desperately need a solution. We desperately need a cure. And both last week and today, we're not only looking at the problem of sin in the main, but specifically the sin of self-deception. Here's what I mean by that. The human heart has an almost infinite ability to deceive itself, 
to hide from the truth when that truth is too difficult for us to bear. It's too painful for us to look at it in the face. And so we hide. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture, starting with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve take of the fruit in the garden, what's the very first thing that they do? They hide. And then when their sin is exposed, when it's laid bare, what do they do? They deflect. Adam says, it's the woman whom you put in the garden here with me. She gave me the fruit, so I ate. And the woman says, it was the serpent whom you put here in the garden with me. He tricked me, so I ate. And so we see here, you hide, you deflect. You hide, you deflect. Then we see it in their son Saul. What does Saul do? He kills his brother, and instantly he hides. And then when God calls him out on it, what does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you see the formula? And yet, each and every one of us... We do exactly the same things. We're looking at a case study this morning of a person who I think has, uh, it's probably the best case study in all of scripture for a person who engages in self-deception, and that is Saul, the first king of Israel. He does this in incredibly terrible ways. Let me bring you up to speed. Last week, we saw all these pictures of Saul where he had echoes of Genesis 3 built into it, the story of the fall. And then we looked at the promise that God makes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the quintessential Advent passage, anticipating the arrival of the anointed one. And God says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And last week, we we asked the question, what's all this about? Who's this pointing to? It's pointing to the advent, the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would make all things new. And so Saul comes along and we ask this question, could Saul be the one? Could Saul be the snake crusher? And if you recall, 1 Samuel chapter 9, we see our eyes are going up, 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 up. As Saul ascends toward his throne, is he the snake crusher? 1 Samuel chapter 10, we see that Saul is confirmed by signs. And later he is confirmed by the drawing of lots. That he is, in fact, the anointed one, the Christ. Or is he? And then in chapter 11, we see this amazing sequence of events where Saul literally crushes Nahash, whose name means serpent. He crushes the serpent of the Amalekites. And we're all asking that question, is Saul the snake crusher? Or the way I put it in your note sheet, is Saul the new Adam, the Christ? Or is he the old Adam revisited? And we discovered that Saul... He's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not the anointed one. He's just Adam revisited. He is the stand-in for you and for me. And because of that, as sad as that is, we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity to look at Saul as a case study for all of us. On why is it that every single person in this room, everyone watching online, has this incredible capacity to engage in self-deception? That we lie to ourselves constantly with respect to our sin and the very motives that we carry for why we do anything good at all. 
that in many ways we deceive ourselves and we're motivated to serve ourselves and to not serve the Lord. And so in that way, I think it's incredibly practical as we start the season of Advent to identify the problem with our hearts and why we do what we do. So if you got your Bibles, turn with me. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Here's the scene. We, we just read the whole thing, the whole chapter in its entirety. I want to march through it, but here's the scene. 3,000 men of Israel, they go to Bethel. And they go to fight against none other than the Philistines. Now, you have to take note of this. This is so significant. The Philistines was the same nation that a few chapters earlier, God saved Israel from by no intervention of Israel at all. They didn't even lift up a pinky finger. God gave them the victory. God routed the Philistines. They run away in fear. They kill themselves because they're so afraid. And God gives them the victory. And instantly after that story, all of Israel says, you are our God, you are our king, we will serve you forever. And then a verse later, Israel says, God, you're great and all, but we want a human king that we can see, and in that way we can be like all the other nations. And we want this king to fight our battles for us. And God treats that as a rejection against him and his sovereign rule as their king, as their Lord, and as their savior. But in the end, God says, you asked for it. That's what Saul literally means. You sold it, so I'll just give this over to you. And here they are. Here's the consequences of their actions. And you gotta be thinking about that. It, it's not a coincidence that they're fighting the Philistines with Saul, you asked for it, during the story. All that context is laid bare on the story that we're reading today. So pick up with me at verse five, chapter 13, verse five. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous on, as the sand on the seashore. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan uh, to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Really interesting. Do you remember the last time someone hid? Adam and Eve hid after they took the fruit. Saul hid after killing his brother. And, I'm sorry, uh, Cain hid after killing his brother, and Saul hid when he was confirmed as king. He hid in the luggage. Here's what's interesting about Israel. They're just following in the footsteps of their leaders. They're doing exactly the same things. And then we pick up in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Now, here's what you got to see before we go to verse 11. Think about Genesis chapter 3. Think about that story again, the story of the fall. Adam and Eve, they do what's wrong. 
They eat of the fruit. They hide. Their sin is exposed. Here's Samuel. He's there to expose the sin. What happens next in Genesis 3? It's exactly what happens here in verse 11. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied with excuses. When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought to myself, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer up the burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. Do you see the deflection? Do you see what Samuel is doing? It's not my fault. Samuel, it's not my fault. It's your fault. It's Adam and Eve again. It's the woman that you put in the garden with me. She gave me the fruit and so I ate. It's the serpent you put in the garden here with me. He tricked me so I ate. Am I my brother's keeper? And here's Saul doing exactly the same things. Look at verse 11. Here's the way that he does it. Verse 11, he says, Samuel, you were late. It's not my fault, it's your fault. You were late. Or verse 12, Samuel, all the men were scattering. They were terribly afraid. So here's what I had to do. I had to take matters into my own hands. Or, as we've been learning throughout this series, it started off in the book of Judges where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And here's Saul. What is he doing? He's saying, I did what was right in my own eyes. I took matters into my own hands. And that's why I did what I did. So as readers, we really have to ask ourselves a question. Why is it that Saul was motivated to make the sacrifice? Or let me put it this way. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. Is it faith or is it fear that motivates Saul to make the sacrifice? Faith or fear? So you got to picture this in your mind, right? In a matter of hours, Saul's men, they, they dwindle down from about 3,000 men to about 600. They're all scattering because Samuel's not coming at the appointed hour. And that's, that's a pretty troubling prospect for a commander-in-chief when you see as many soldiers as there is sand on the seashore and many chariots and horsemen and all, like there's a powerful army before you. And you have 600 men. How are you going to defeat that army? But here's what's really interesting. The author is intentionally trying to remind you of a story that happened in the book of Judges. It's just played in reverse, and it is the story of Gideon's 300. So let me read this to you. Judges chapter 7. God says this to Gideon. He says, you have too many soldiers, too many uh, Gideon, for, uh, with you for me to drop Midian into their hands because Israel would become arrogant and say, it was my own abilities that delivered me. That's why you're to ask in full view of the soldiers, whoever is afraid or is trembling may go back from Mount Gilead and return home. Here's my question for you. Where is Saul and Israel in this story? They're at Gilead. 
That's what it says in verse 7. They're in Gad and they're in Gilead. It's the same location, same uh, sort of sequence of events where many are becoming few. But the difference is Gideon was filled with faith and Saul is filled with fear. And the question we have to ask is why? Why is that the case? Well, we learn a little bit more about this with the context. Why is it that God commands Gideon to go from more than 20,000 men to just 300? Well, he'll, he tells you. The first reason is because he only wants soldiers with great faith that they trust that if the Lord is going to bring about the victory, it will be the Lord who does it and not their own abilities. And the second reason is so that all will know, all the surrounding nations will know that it was God who gave the victory and not they themselves. That's the reason. And so Gideon understands this. God is the one who gives victory, not us. God is the one who brings about victory, not us. So that's the question that we can ask ourselves. Where have you placed your hope? Where have you placed your hope, friends? In the story of Saul, his numbers are dwindling, but 600 is still double the number of Gideon. Saul knows that story. He knows that story. He just doesn't believe that it will happen again. And so the reason why he is so afraid is the same reason why Saul was hiding away in the luggage last week when he was confirmed as the king. It's subtle, but this is one of the ways in which we engage in the sin of self-deception. Let me just try and unpack this. It's that deeply hidden, subtle form of pride that leads to fear. It's the pride of self-importance that leads to the pride of self-obsession, which leads to the pride of self-doubt and fear. Do you see how that works? It's all riding on me. My goals, my dreams, my valor, my aspirations, my ability to pull up my bootstraps, that's the self-importance, which leads to the sin of um, self-pressure, right? I got to be able to do it all. Self-obsession. And if it all rides on you, where are you going to wind up? It's going to lead to fear and self-doubt. Because now everything rides on you. All of it. The difference between Gideon and Saul is Gideon understood that the victory came from God, but Saul is convinced that the only way that they will get the victory is if he takes matters into his own hands. And that resonates with me because just like Saul, I'm a sinful soul. And there's a lot of times in which I do exactly the same things. Maybe you resonate with that. Maybe, just maybe, there's some of you here this is the way you run your business. This is the way that you treat your bank account. This is the way that you treat the circumstances of your life. Everything rides on you. So here's what this looks like. When things go really, really well, here's the temptation for you. It's going to be for you to build a monument unto yourself, which Saul actually does, by the way. We'll get there. He'll build a monument to himself when everything goes well. And so if everything rides on you and your business is successful or your kids are stable or whatever else the case may be, things are going according to plan, man, look at me. I'm doing it. I'm doing an amazing job. The pride of self-importance. If things go poorly 
and you think it all rides on you, then you will be filled with fear and self-doubt because you didn't pull up your bootstraps. You couldn't cut it. And in the same way, you're still denying God's sovereignty as though God doesn't have control over your life. For those of you who are gifted, for those of you who make mistakes, for those of you who build an empire, for those of you who lose your empire, in the same way, the question is, is God sovereign? Is he in control of your life? Or is it just on you to figure out how to do it? Is it just on you to make sure that you pull up your bootstraps and the world goes according to plan? Saul doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. And I have to admit to myself, I have times like that in my own life too. There, there are times, God knows this, I have conversations with him and I say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I took the steering wheel again. I took the steering wheel of your church. I took the steering wheel of my vocation. I took the steering wheel of my gifts and abilities. It all belongs to you, Lord. I'm so sorry, I, I give it back to you. I've had that conversation with God a good many times. But here's what's so interesting about it. Every single time I do that, I feel an incredible burden lifted off my shoulders. Do you know why? Because suddenly I remind myself that the world doesn't revolve around Justin and I don't have to carry the burdens of the world. That I can just give that back over to him and say, I'm a vessel in your hands. It's incredibly comforting. But if you have the heart of Saul, and you think everything rides on you, then you are going to engage in exactly the same practices that he does. That's the motivation. That's the sin of self-deception that he's so caught up in. So let's look at this question a little bit deeper now. Why are we tempted to steal God of his steering wheel? Why do we do that? Why are we so motivated to do this in our business, in our family life, and in all the circumstances of our lives? And Saul gives at least a partial answer here with what he says, or with what Samuel says in verse 13. Look at this. Samuel says to Saul, you have done a foolish thing. Now, when, whenever we hear the word fool, I think we see it as a synonym of a mildly derogatory word, word like you're an idiot or you're stupid or, or something like that. But fool has a specific definition in the Old Testament. It's not any of those types of things. A fool can be better described like it is in Psalm chapter 14. Let me read this to you. It says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. He's not talking about atheists. The psalmist is not talking about an atheist who doesn't believe in God. The psalmist is talking about someone who believes in God, but who acts as though God will not act. Do you see the difference? God, you exist. God, I hear your promises, but I don't trust that you will do what you say you will do. It's just like our ancestors in the faith when they were out in the wilderness and God says, take enough manna for one day, not a week, not a month, not a year, for a day. Because sufficient is my grace for you today and tomorrow sufficient is my grace for you. But you're gonna have to come back tomorrow. And what did they do? They didn't take manna for a day. They took enough for a week and it turned into maggots in their tents and God detested it. Why? Because they want to get out from under God's thumb because they don't trust that God will do tomorrow what he just did today. It's really hard to put your trust in God day after day after day after day after day. Wouldn't it be easier just to build up your own little mini empire? 
so that you don't have to trust in him every single day like that? And that's what Saul's doing here. And so he is called a fool because he believes in God, but he doesn't trust that God will do what he says he will do. That's the point. So here's how we engage in self-deception today when we don't trust that God will do what he says he will do. And when God catches us, we do what Saul did. You saw the formula. We've seen it for the last two weeks. We see it again today. He makes excuses. He passes the blame. That's how self-deception works. He has enormously large binoculars. And he tends to blame, and I think we do this too, one of three things. You blame God. You blame others. You blame the circumstances of your life. That's kind of the three ways that we do it, right? God, it's your fault. No, God, it's the fault of someone else. Eve made me do it. Uh, The serpent made me do it. Uh, Saul says, the soldiers made me do it. Saul says, Samuel, you are late, blaming others. Or you blame the circumstances. The soldiers were running off, so I had to take action. I had to put matters into my own hands. I had to do what was right in my own eyes. You blame external forces, but you don't have a mirror. You just can't see the sin that is raging in your own heart because your binoculars are so huge. Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we do that in exactly the same ways? And then there's a a second way that we engage in the sin of self-deception, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we've already spent pretty ample time on this when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So it's a revisited principle, but I want to lay it out before you because that's what the author wants us to see. Really quick, let's remind ourselves of the story. Israel is about to get slaughtered by none other than the Philistines. They go out into war. They lose 4,000 of their men. And then they cry out to God. They say, God, where were you? Why didn't you fight our battles for us? And then one person has a really swell idea. They say, let's go to the tabernacle, get the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, bring it into camp with us. And in that way, God will have to bless us. Do you remember that? And then a messenger after um, Israel, they get routed. They get totally annihilated. 30,000 soldiers die on that day. The worst defeat in Israel's history up to that point. And then a messenger goes back to Eli, the great high priest, and he informs him, both of your sons are dead, the ark of God is gone, 30,000 men are gone, Eli falls down on his neck, he dies. And then his daughter-in-law, upon hearing the same news that her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law, all of them are dead, she goes into early labor pains, and she gives birth to a son, and here's what happens. As she was dying... The women attending her said, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichkabod, where's the glory? That's what that literally means. Where's the glory of God? Saying the glory of God has departed from Israel. So keep that in mind. Now let's look at chapter 14, starting at verse 2. Look there with me if you have your Bibles. It says, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah who was wearing an ephod. Uh Uh-oh, who wears ephods? Priests do. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. That's not a good sign. They're back. 
or their descendants are back. We're being reminded of 1 Samuel 4, but then instantly, I think as readers, now that we know that, constant, uh, that, that context, we would say, surely they're not dumb enough to do the same thing. Surely they're not going to bring the ark of God back into the camp again. Like, the, their previous parents and grandparents, they already paid their dumb tax. They saw how that happened. They're not going to do it again. And then we see verse 18 Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. Do you see what Saul's doing? He's just repeating the mistakes of the people of Israel because he's not the snake crusher. He's not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. He's just Adam revisited. He's all of us revisited. He's a stand-in for us. And so the second way we engage in the sin of self-deception is when we use God and are convinced that he can be bought rather than worship him. And friends, I think this is the most dangerous form of self-deception there is because it's just so subtle. It's so subtle because lifetime churchgoers can do this. People who tithe and give of their first and their best can do this. People who serve in the church faithfully can do this. Pastors and ministers can do this. People who try to observe all of God's righteous rules can do this. The elder brother in Luke chapter 15, the one who stays home and complies while the younger brother runs off and engages in wild and reckless living. The elder brother, he stays, he obeys the will of the father. He does this. We all have an incredible capacity to do this in our own hearts, to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Because we want to get out from under God's thumb, out from under his control. Not because we want to make much of God, not because we love God, but because we love ourselves. And that's the formula that Saul is laying out for us today. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that you can speak in the tongues of angels, you can have prophetic powers, you can understand mysteries and knowledge, you can have faith that moves mountains, you can even have the audacity to allow your body to be burned for the sake of the gospel, and you could do all of that for the wrong reasons. Not because you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but because you love yourself and you think God can be used, he can be co-opted for your purposes. It's the sin of self-deception. So here's what I want to do with the balance of our time. I want to get really practical and look at the practical ways that we do this today so that we can expose it for what it is. Because without the proper diagnosis of the problem, we will not understand the purpose of the cure. There's no reason why someone going to a doctor will allow a doctor to open them up, to expose them to infection, or to possibly even die, unless they know that the circumstances are dire. Unless they know that without this cure, they will certainly die. And in the same way, we have to have a proper diagnosis of our sinful condition and if we're engaging in self-deception, what it means is possibly even here this morning, some of us are engaging in this, in self-deception. You're sitting here in the church, you're complying, you're obeying God, but you have more in mind with the elder brother in Luke 15 than someone with a humble and contrite heart. So what are the ways that we do this today? 
five ways I want to walk you through, and each of them starts with a big, fat but. Here's the first one. But God, look at what I've done for you. Look what I've done for you, God. Lord, I I might not have obeyed your word perfectly, but look at all the things I have done for you. I go to church sometimes. I I serve sometimes. I I tithe sometimes. Look Look at the things that I have done. Don't look at the bad things I have done. Look at all the good things. Pastor Marcel, he shared this with us uh, two weeks ago. He's this zinger of a line that's been with me for the last two weeks. He said, 95% obedience is 100% disobedience. I thought he was just going to take the mic, drop it, and walk off stage. It's like, whoa! We do the same things. We do the same things. Number two, but God, fill in the blank, made me do it. God made me do it. My neighbor made me do it. The circumstances of my life made me do it. Someone else, not me. And Saul does this from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 15. He's constantly passing the blame. That's his form of self-deception. This is probably the most frequent use of his, is passing the blame. There was a a memorable evening, uh, probably a couple months ago, in which all four of my children were being a little bit less than adorable. You know what I'm saying? And uh, some were pulling hair, some were screaming, some were fighting at each other. And so I did what every loving father does. I went and found their mother. And I said, rock, paper, scissors, do you want to go in? She said, no, it's you they take after. Get out there. And so, you know, I, I went out. And so I did what every loving Canadian father did. I sat down on the couch with two kids on both sides. We turned on the TV and we watched YouTube videos of hockey players who get hit from another hockey player, they retaliate, they hit the other player. And as you all know, it's always the retaliator who gets the penalty. And they love that. They had a lot of fun with it. And at the end, I sat down with them and I said, so here's what this means. If your sister pulls your hair, that doesn't justify you to pull her hair back. If your brother punches you, that doesn't justify you to go back and punch your brother. As we parents like to say, two wrongs doesn't make a right. To which my son Liam said, yeah, but two odd numbers does make an even number, and three lefts does make a right. He takes after his father. But here's the point. Here's the point that we have to see, friends. God holds each of us accountable for our own actions, not the actions of others. That is not to say that you haven't encountered circumstances that are really difficult. God walks in those valleys with you in those difficult circumstances. That's not to say you haven't been wronged by a neighbor. Perhaps you have, perhaps in evil and gratuitous ways. But God does not hold you accountable for their actions. He holds you accountable for yours. Makes me think of Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. Frodo says to Gandalf, he says, I wish the ring never came to me. I wish none of this ever happened. To which Gandalf replies, so do all who live to see such times. But ours is not to decide what times we live in. Ours is to to decide what to do with the time that has been given to us. In other words, the only thing that you get judged for is what you do. Not your circumstances, not others, not the binoculars that you're looking around at. 
What are you going to do with the time that God has given to you? Let me say this a little bit differently. Could it be possible that God has placed you in some really difficult circumstances precisely because he wants to bring about his glory and your good? Is it possible that God could redeem even the most difficult circumstances of our life in order to shine a light to you, not only, but also to people around you, for them to see you as a witness to the work of God working in your heart? But if we got our binoculars out, we're never going to see it. We're never going to see the ways in which God is working to bring about his glory because we're so fixated on our circumstances. Once again, it's the form of self-deception that says, I need to pull up my bootstraps. I got to take control of the situation. And yet God might be saying, I'm the one who brought it. I brought the situation to your door because I want to do something miraculous. But we'll never see it if we're carrying our binoculars. Number three, but God, it seemed right to me. It seemed right to me. This is a big one. Um, the story of Judges ends and the story of 1 Samuel begins with everyone was doing right in their own eyes, right? And we see that Saul, he just keeps doing this over and over and over again. And yet scripture has something to say about that, especially the book of Proverbs. Let me read three to you. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool, what's a fool, right? That's someone who believes in God, but who acts as though God will not act. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 14, verse 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to their death. Proverbs 26, verse 12, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. So if you do what seems right to you and not to God, it's just another way of acting like you know better than God. It's another form of self-deception in which you know better. God, who's sovereign on his throne, he just hasn't considered the circumstances of your life in which you are the exception to the rule. Nope. Nope. God knows best. We do not. And so, once again, it's, it's the sin of self-deception that started in the garden, the great lie in the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was their motivation? We saw that last week. God's holding me down. God doesn't have my best interest at heart. God doesn't love me as much as he says he loves me. And if I eat of this fruit, my eyes will be opened and I will be like God. That was the motivation. They didn't trust God at his word. They believed in God, but they didn't believe God would act in the way that he promised. Do we do the same things too? Number four, but God, I did it for mutually beneficial reasons. We saw that most clearly two weeks ago when we saw that after Saul destroyed the Amalekites, he was supposed to destroy it completely, but he left some of the best animals for himself, right? And then when Samuel confronted him on it, the very first thing that he did is he tried to evade it. He said, well, the soldiers did it. I didn't do it. And then when he was pressed a little bit further, what did he say? But you gotta know, Samuel, I was gonna take some of those best animals and I was gonna sacrifice them to the Lord. Like, if anything, you should be thanking me. You know, so it'd kind of be like if a bank robber went and stole all the money at a bank, 
right, and held people at gunpoint, gave them PTSD for the rest of their lives, and just terrible scene. But at the end, when God confronted him on it, he said, but God, I was going to tithe 10% of my earnings from the bank robbery to the church. If anything, you should thank me. You're welcome, right? And so here's what we have to see in this. We have to see This is tough. We have to see that our disobedience is never going to be used to bring about God's glory and his purposes in the world. God doesn't need you to disobey his commands in order for his will to be completed. And yet it's one of the ways that we lie to ourselves. I did it for mutually beneficial reasons. The ends do not justify the means. And number five, but God, I was afraid of the opinions of others. Repeatedly, we see in Scripture that the fear of other people is a common underlying reason for our sin. And yet, Jesus, he gives one of those really hard sayings in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. You can consider writing it down. Look at the context later, but here's what he says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So here's the point. Oftentimes, friends, for those of us who are young with peers at school, for those of us who are old, we are often motivated by the opinions of others. I've shared with you before that one of the ways in which I'm a work in progress is is that I love to be liked. The opinions of others is important to me, and yet I got to die to that. Every day I got to die to that. Uh, Julie and I, we have 10 pithy sayings that we put um, on our wall right next to the door that we leave every single day. One of them I share with you a lot. Life is short, eternity is long, live like it. But one at the very top is this, that we should be more concerned with our character in the eyes of God than our reputation. Be more concerned with your character in the eyes of God than your reputation. But that's easier said than done. Because when you have a a peer right in front of you and they want you to do something that you know that God would not like, you see that person. That's a flesh and blood person and you care about their opinion. And you're so motivated to do what is not right in the eyes of God because of the person that lays out in front of you. And yet God says, we need to have an eternal perspective. We need to see God for who he truly is. Whose opinion matters more to you, your neighbor or the Lord? Whose opinion matters most to you? That's another way that we engage in self-deception. I want you to see that each of these five methods, each of these five forms of self-deception are actually one and the same. They're all doing the same thing. It's just different methods of doing it. Tim Chester, in his book, First Samuel for You, he puts this quite clearly. He says this. The real problem underlying all these excuses is this. We take it upon ourselves to decide what is right and wrong, what matters and what does not. We judge other people for their failings. Those are the binoculars. And we excuse our own. We don't have a mirror. We play God. We think we know better than God. We act as if we are the judge of the world. We should call this for what it is, blasphemy. The excuses do not make our sin better. 
they make our sin worse. So in this season of Advent, I shared with you at the beginning, there's two things that we have to do. One is we have to have a proper diagnosis of the problem. What's the problem? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the problem? Each of us is prone to the sin of self-deception, to say I'm a lot better than, than I actually am. That's the problem that we have. And then what's the solution? What's the cure? The cure is Jesus. And I want you to see how this story echoes in, ushers in the work of Jesus. I left this for last. I wanted you to kind of see the whole context before we even mention the name of the character who is the main character in this whole sequence. His name is Jonathan. He is the son of Saul. Jonathan is facing exactly the same circumstances as his father. He's facing the circumstances of Samuel not showing up on time. He's facing the circumstances of his fellow soldiers uh, committing mutiny and running away, going from 3,000 to 600. He's dealing with the issue of the fact, we skipped over this, but one part of the story is, aside from Jonathan and Saul, no one has a sword or a spear. That's pretty tough to win a battle when you don't have weapons. They don't have any. They don't have any. And he's also dealing with the issue that he is heir to the throne. He's got a lot to lose in this. And so it's exactly the same circumstances as his father, and yet he's filled with great faith. Why? Why? Because he has the heart of Gideon, where he realizes that God is sovereign, he is the one who gives the victory, and it's not just on my own ability to pull up my own bootstraps in order to win the battle. He understands this principle that God is in control, and he rests secure in that. He's not filled with the pride of self-importance, which leads to the pride of self-obsession, which leads to the pride of self-fear and self-dread. He's not tied up in all of those things because he sees God for who he truly is. So here's the juxtaposition, chapter 14, verse 1. Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. And then we see what happens next, verse 4. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bazes, and the other was called Sena. Do you know what Bazes means? It means slippery hill. Do you know what Sena means? It means hill of thorns. He's literally ascending the hill of thorns. Hang on to that. Here's how the story ends. Jonathan has the courage. He goes up. He routes the Philistines. They start attacking themselves very similarly to what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God gives the victory. Here's what happens. And on that day, verse 23, the Lord saved Israel. So here's the question I want to lay out before you. Who else do you know climbed up a hill of thorns to bring about the victory? Do you see the pictures? Do you see Jesus in this story? Do you see Jesus who not only ascended a hill of thorns, but wore a crown of thorns? Do you see Jesus who not only ascended the hill at the risk, but at the cost of his life? Do you see Jesus who not only ascended a hill to conquer his enemies, but to save his enemies? 
Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? That's what I want you to see today because only in that way will God be able to take our hearts of stone and turn them into a heart of flesh. The only way in which we will have the courage to step out into the light and to expose our sin for what it is, is if we see the work of Jesus and what he has done for us, that we would be willing to enter into that space to lay down our pride, our ego, our sin, our shame, to lay it all out before his throne because of what he has done for us on the cross. And that is why we can sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.